Natalie Stopka is a Yonkers, New York-based artist and educator focused on the material history of color. She captures material and elemental interactions in her collaborative, experimental art practice. Natalie's meticulous, layered imagery incorporates botanical dyes that are ethically foraged or cultivated in her studio garden. The plants provide a seasonally evolving vocabulary of texture and color, rooting her artwork to place. Raised on the south coast of Massachusetts, she earned a BFA from the Rhode Island School of Design and MFA from the University of New Mexico, Albuquerque. Natalie! <laughs> Morgan. Hi. Hello. Thank you for joining me. It's my pleasure. How's the weather in uh, in uh, Yonkers? Hot, humid, and smoky. Oh, smoky? From the fires in Canada. I heard that there's also some torrential rain happening on the East Coast. We had a lot of rain. Not, not too bad where I am. How is the weather in Colorado? It's great. It was really wet for summer weather until about two or three weeks ago. Now it's really hot, like desert hot. <laughs> so, but we should be good on the fire fire end of things this year because of all the the snow and rain, which is awesome. Yeah, that actually um, ties into the first question. I like to begin these interviews with uh, the question, what place do you call home or places do you call home? I call home currently Yonkers, New York, overlooking the Hudson River on the ancestral lands of the Lenni Lenape called Lenape Hooking. But even though I've lived here for six years, and my garden is here, which really ties me to this place and the water that runs through the soil down to the river that I can see from the garden. It's not really my home. I'm also connected through our family cabin upstate in New York. I've been spending time there for a lot longer. It's in the Shuangang region, also Lenape Hooking. And, um, I feel so much more connected to the artistic community there, the people and the organizations. And that's where I do most of my foraging for wild plants. And I still call home the south coast of Massachusetts, where I was raised and where my family lives. Beautiful. Could you share a little bit about your spiritual upbringing? Sure. Um, I'm not practicing. Quaker, but I was raised in the Quaker meeting, the Society of Friends. My parents both joined when I was a small child, when we moved uh, to the woods in Massachusetts, to an area that has a long history of Quaker meeting houses. So it's very community centric and it's very focused on uh, consensus in decision-making and in helping one another. I would say that was my experience of it growing up. Yeah. Knowing you for a little bit of time, I 
have experienced you as being someone who's incredibly inclusive, generous, tuned in to other people in like such a balanced way. Do you think that that your spiritual upbringing may have influenced that? Um, thank you for noticing that. That's nice to hear. And I'm not sure if it was uh, Quakerism or the model set by my parents, that they are both intrinsically that way as well. Beautiful. What is a Quaker meeting house like? Can you? <laughs> um, they tend to be a bit austere, not a lot of ornamentation uh, in the New England architectural vernacular, also the colonial architecture vernacular of that region. Um, a lot of white. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Yeah, there's not there's a an ethos of of plainness of non-ostentatiousness that comes with Quakerism that tends to be part of the design of the meeting houses. Have you ever seen that show Fleabag? Yes. <laughs> you know the episode where when she's in love with the priest and the priest is in love with her and they're trying so hard not to go after it. Um, they end up in that Quaker meeting house. Is it like that? Do you remember that episode? <laughs> A little bit, you know, there are um, some, some varieties in really old meeting houses. They are divided by gender. So there's a women's side and a men's side where you each sit and the meeting can consist of a, a pastor who leads everyone, or it can be a silent meeting in which everyone sits quietly and communes essentially with God individually. Um, because it's believed that everyone has a light within themselves, and it, that light is a, you know, a connection to the divine. Um, so women as well as men possess that, but they still have to sit separately. <laughs> the older meeting houses are um, tend to be divided in that way. And they tend to be um, dark wood, not the sort of white milk paint. Oh, wow. Yeah. But so did, did you grow up going to meeting houses that were gender separated? No. Okay. Wow. Yeah, I think it's really... It's fascinating because I've never met anyone who grew up in that lineage. It's it's been so long, and um, you know, as a kid, it's not super. It's not super rigorous. It's going to going to meeting is a fun time to go to Sunday school and play with other kids, and you know, run around in the woods if you can if you can. Um, so getting into the theological side. I, that's stretching my recollection, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it does inform, uh, our shared interest as young girls of living the prairie lifestyle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> For those I, listening, I went to prairie camp as a kid, quilting camp and prairie camp, which is 
super nerdy. And when I told Natalie about this, she was incredibly stoked. <laughs> I was so jealous um, because I was and still am an avid reader of history and historical fiction. And I love domestic craft and those sorts of skills of homemaking that are often to do with cooking and with um, textiles. There are ways of showing love for our family and nesting. And I've always enjoyed them for some reason. Gardening is another extension of that. So Prairie I would go now to Prairie Camp. <laughs> and, you know, I would, a potential alternate career path would be historical reenactor for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I love it. Okay. Well, we could talk about this for a whole hour, but we got to move on to the <laughs> the focus of our uh, interview, which is your incredible artwork. Um, and so let's start with what are you working on in your creative artistic practice at the moment, right now? At the moment, I am focusing my long quest of moving my studio practice away from synthetics, synthetic dyes, pigments, acrylics, away from all of those, basically divesting of fossil fuel byproducts in the studio. And my particular focus in that effort right now is building relationship with the abundant plants that are around me. I've worked with natural dyes for a long time, over 10 years. But I am starting to try to forge relationship with plants that are ruderal species that grow in disturbed land really readily, so they're quite abundant, as well as invasive species, which are introduced and vigorous, <laughs> and try to find ways to access color in those plants for dyeing and for pigments. And this is a process I've been doing for a few years already. I've worked with several local plants which are categorized by the state as invasive species, but I want to extend my research and offer this as a learning opportunity to other artists. How can we extrapolate some basic recipes so that people in other parts of the country can work with their own locally invasive, ruderal, boisterous, rambunctious, plants. I can't know every plant, but every person I think who wants to can develop their own relationships with their own local plants. And part of this quest is also to nuance our understanding of what an invasive species is, because that term is so loaded with this attitude of militarism and xenophobia. It's a real binary, invasive native, either or. But in reality, nature is full of dynamism. It's full of change, and it can't be reduced to that binary. So I want to use words like boisterous, vigorous, plentitudinous, to say that these our ecosystems are changing, our plant populations are changing, everything changes. Some plants become naturalized over time. Some native plants can become invasive given the right environmental stimulus. 
So let's step away from the binary and engage with these plants and try to find beauty within them. That's my current project. Tell us a little bit about what a native plant might be versus an invasive versus a ruderal plant. Mm. A native plant, for example, in my region could be goldenrod. There are a number of different species of goldenrod. They support a huge number of pollinators and they co-evolved with those pollinators in this place. And it so happens that goldenrod also contains beautiful yellow dye. An invasive plant or an introduced plant is one which comes from someplace else, evolved someplace else. And in this ecosystem, it's not bounded by the pressures and the predators that contain it. It is able to outcompete native species. And it's so vigorous that it reaches a sort of biomass that the state labels it as a threat to humans and to our capitalistic enterprises that it might interfere with. So not all introduced species are invasive species. Some of them do not outcompete native plants. They just commingle and exist side by side. Those introduced species become naturalized. So the species that are labeled invasive at any time could be changing, new ones arriving, some sort of subsiding as they're outcompeted. A ruderal plant, on the other hand, could be any of the above. A ruderal plant simply means a plant that is the first to put down roots in disturbed ground. So in my region, a ruderal plant might be goldenrod. It lives along the margins of roads and parking lots very readily. Uh, a ruderal plant could also be an invasive species. So it's, it is one of those categories of neither nor that I like. And speaking to forest fires, the ruderal plants would be the first ones to kind of pop up after. Yeah. I just love that word, ruderal. Me uh, too. I don't know why. Uh, There's a real um, sort of a poeticism about ruderal plants because they represent renewal and dynamism and resilience. So we think that they're just common weeds but they mean that a place which looks uninhabitable, which may be completely scarred by fire or industrial activity, that place actually can support life. What capitalistic enterprises would be threatened by a, a plant species? So many. Largely agriculture, uh, invasive species that might be encroaching on fields of produce or might be resistant to the herbicides used against weeds. Uh, invasive species could also certainly threaten waterways, aquaculture, meat production. A lot of industrial farming. Mm -hmm. And many invasive species were introduced in an effort to control some other species. Wow. And they got out of hand. There's a lot to unpack in that. Yes. Some, you know, were just carpetbaggers that 
uh, came along with the migration of people, but some were introduced intentionally for ornamental gardening or for keeping something else in check. Decolonizing thinking means a big effort, a big self-awareness, um, and ongoing research. I've been thinking about it mostly in regards to gardening and plants, because gardening is an enterprise which has a lot of colonial roots. I'm not talking about the domestic agriculture of growing vegetables, but growing ornamental plants has a long history of acquisitiveness of gathering specimens because they're beautiful from different parts of the world. And as globalization and colonialism spread, plant hunters went into the quote unquote wilderness to gather species. Botanical gardens are cabinets of curiosity. And that effort goes hand in hand with the spread of invasive species. Now, to decolonize our thinking about plants, first of all, means stepping aside that binary of native invasive. Mm -hmm. The invasive timeline is absolutely tied to the colonial timeline and colonial terminology the words explicitly come from legal language about citizens and non-citizens. So just being aware of all of that baggage is the first step to being able to unpack it. I'm trying not to privilege any particular plant species over another, and I'm trying not to blame any plant for being here. It's not the plant's fault. The plant is just growing. What's coming up for me, having, as you know, grown up with two grandparents who are first-generation immigrants. Do you have any thoughts about immigration, migration in relationship to this conversation? And if not, no worries. I think that my focus has been a little bit more on the future of our engagement with plants. We have a really long, long, amazing history of collaborating with them, both for art, but also for sustenance, for medicine, for spiritual practice. And in my corner of that, in the world of natural dying, a lot of our knowledge, there's so many different approaches and cultures and plants and people who have evolved the practices of natural dyeing over millennia, right? And with the advent of the synthetic revolution in the 1900s, starting in 1856, all the way up to the present day, we've had a revolution in synthetics. And because they have supplanted so many of our traditional colorants in the artist studio and the textile studio, we've lost a lot of that knowledge and heritage of our collaboration with plants. So my focus has been on reconnecting to that heritage, but also bringing it into the present and the future. I'm not just 
focusing on the historically important dye plants and insects, but saying, okay, what are the plants I have right here and now in this particular place, which has been shaped and roiled by tides of colonization, industrialization, and climate change? What is appropriate for me to use to collaborate with now in the creation of color and of art? So I, I don't want to apologize for the presence of introduced species. And I don't want to just laud the history in the Eurocentric tradition of art making. I want to find a new way. Beautiful. That leads us towards your actual artwork. Can you share with the listeners, our listeners, about your art? What do you make? How do you make it? And why? What I actually make tend to be experimental prints. And how I make it is a little bit more the point for me. How I make artwork is a process of, as I said, collaboration with material sources, natural materials. And what I do is put reactive materials into situations where they can react. And I capture, I try to capture, a moment of flux where two things or multiple things are interacting. So this can be capturing ripples on the surface of water as a monotype. It could be capturing the moment that ice crystals form and leave an imprint. And it also involves abnegating a lot of control to the materials and these chemical and physical interactions that they're having, because I don't always know, I usually don't know how, what the work will be, how it will look, what form it will take. I'm pursuing the interactions. Recently, this also includes ceding control to entropy and actually making artwork that destroys itself over time using corrosive pigments that eat through the substrate over time. So what might be a work on paper suddenly becomes three-dimensional and time-based as it evolves. I love the dark side of your art. The corrosives have been a really solid addition, I think. Thank um, you. I, it's nice to be appreciated because so many folks are really horrified when they discover that I'm making things that aren't stable, <laughs> that will devolve over time. Yeah, maybe that's because I come from not from the fine arts realm that, you know, that excites me. I could see in the fine arts realm. Yeah, there's there's so much um, focus on framing, protecting, uh, saving art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it has so much to do with our cultural belief, what so many of us were taught in art school, that these things need to exist indefinitely for centuries. A single stroke of genius the you know, needs to be preserved for future generations. And I think that the cyclicality of the natural world is a lot more interesting 
than stasis. There's definitely a perversity to my practice (laughs) in that impulse. Yeah, that impulse to cyclicality. Tell us a little bit about some of the things that you're grappling with or that are evolving from your classical sort of training as a fine artist and to where you are now. Well, something that I have been learning over the few years that I've known you and your work, Morgan, is just the acceptance of the embodied act and the performative practice of art making. And the knowledge that resides in our muscle memory and our sense memory that we enact every time we make art or we engage in the, in the practices that support art making. And all of those multifarious practices can live in the body and not just in the brain. Embodiment means creativity. It means to bring something into form. So, you know, when I think of it on a somatic level, I think of it as like, there's an emotion forming in the body. We can either repress it, control it, deny it, or we can embody it and let it ultimately create something, not in a harmful way, but if we embrace it and communicate it, something's going to happen. He's kind of talking about like how your art, you're, you're trusting that you're putting materials in relationship to each other and they're going to have some kind of interaction. It's the same thing with ourselves, with our bodies. So that's really cool. And, um, but yeah, I think this understanding of embodiment, embodiment is being thrown around as a word to replace like somatics or movement or different things. Um, But what it really means is to create, to let something come into its full expression, its full form. So your practice is all about embodiment. I think that that growing awareness in me has given me a lot more respect even than I had as a lover of history for our forebears who the generations of artists, proto-chemists, who figured things out by doing them bodily and they understood they understood the world through all of their senses because the world is always giving us these clues so for example in the studio you have all of the textures of your pigments that you're grinding you have the quiet sound of a simmering pot or the periodic bubbling of a fermentation If I need to know whether I've prepared some fabric for dyeing, I can just touch it with the tip of my tongue. And if it sticks a little bit, I'll know that I've prepared that fabric. There are a lot of cues and clues that we can pick up on. And this is how people taught themselves craft and understood the outside world. There's a particular phrase for this type of knowing that I really like, which comes from Pamela H. Smith. She's an author on medieval and early modern systems of artisanal knowledge. And she calls this habits of attention. It means the way that we are attuned using all of our senses to pick up on cues. And we have to cultivate a habit of attention to be sensitive and receptive and take, literally take in the outside world. 
we have an attention-based economy. Our, our economy, especially now with the power of the interwebs and cyberspace, our, our attention is being capitalized, which is really interesting. So it is sort of rebellious to not pay attention, to instead turn your attention to your garden, to feeding the people you love, to these are all things Natalie does, to <laughs> making prints and putting various elements into relationship with each other. I want to ask you, when I first suggested that there was a performative element to your practice, how did that feel? And and what? how has that changed? Um, like, how are you feeling about your understanding of performance now? Well, when you first said that and say it again now, I think, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a performer. There is a performative element when I'm alone in my studio and I'm in a flow, a workflow, and I do need to make things happen bodily. Um, but that's not a moment that I like to share. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do realize that also as an educator, I am teaching people how to engage with these plants, engage with these practices of pigment making and dyeing. And so I'm teaching them the same performance and the same sensory cues that I follow in the studio. As I just mentioned, I'm giving them a score to find and follow those cues on their own. And in another sense, there's a part of my practice involves Japanese suminagashi, which is a printmaking technique. It's a marbling technique that dates back over a thousand years. And I really enjoy practicing suminagashi because it really attunes those senses and encourages this collaborative frame of mind because I'm not in control when I'm practicing suminagashi. I'm collaborating with ink and with all of the natural forces acting on the ink as it's swirling and eddying in a tray of water. So it really is like a meditation aid to engage in this practice. And it teaches me so much about problem solving and emergent design. It's almost a relief to realize that I can give up the idea of having a preconceived notion of what an artwork is going to be. And that by following the cues, allowing a place for serendipity in the process and trusting this practice and performance, something is going to come out of it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be responsible for what it is. I just engage in the steps. Yeah, what's actually happening in your work is that the materials are performing. Mm-hmm. Just really exciting. And it's quite a compliment that you think, you know, you have said the finished output looks complete because I don't know what it will necessarily be. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of iterations 
of this practice for it, it to emerge as a finished product. I don't like that word product. <laughs> right, right. As, as a, a finished piece. As a piece. So, but how do you, is it a bodily sensation that you trust when something is finished? Is there a feeling? Mm, that feeling is informed by a lot of formal art training still. Mm -hmm. What do I think it says when I see it? You know, what is it communicating back to me? What is it mirroring back to me? If it's saying something that's a convincing argument for my practice and my worldview, <laughs> then it's complete. Wow. But these are ongoing meditations, really. Like you could just keep placing the paper in the ink. Yeah. 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 What is emergent design? I would define it as that process of not knowing what the finished product is and being able to pivot at any moment. Uh, it means, you know, just getting in a boat and seeing where the river goes. Right. So having an embodied relationship to your practice and to the world around you versus a controlled one, which is at the heart of, I think, decolonizing our thinking, decolonizing our body, decolonizing our relationships. And one of the lessons of the Sumanigashi tray is that you can imagine I have a tray of water and floating on the surface is some ink. And through the water is so readily transmitted any tiny vibration, any air current, that as the ink flows around the surface, it becomes an illustration of fluid dynamics and of all of the inputs, all of the forces that are moving it around become visible in a way that they would be hidden to our eye otherwise. And as you engage in this process of putting the ink down, watching it flow, you become aware that your body is also mostly water and all of the same inputs, the air currents, the barometric pressure, the humidity, those are all acting on you too. There's no separation. We're just a porous being. <laughs> yes. This is where the work has so much depth for me is also that the unknown, the unconscious, the non-experienced side is present too. Again, it's just like this completely embodied meditative practice of the non-dual. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so exciting. My whole body's been buzzing the whole time. <laughs> we got to talk about your garden. What's growing in your garden? What are you eating from your garden? What are you enjoying? And then also, what are you foraging? Okay. I have a pretty small garden, five little raised beds. One of them is purely ornamentals that I just love to look at because I'm very susceptible to beautiful things, even though ornamental gardening is a vestige of colonialism. <laughs> um <laughs> so I grow pollinator supporting plants and beautiful plants, plants that have different shapes to support different types of pollination in both the day and the night. That's one bed. And then I have four beds that are dedicated to 
herbs and vegetables. So I've been eating as much lettuce and collards and kale as I can. The peas just came out, the fava beans came out, and the beans are in now. And I got some real fat tomatoes growing (laughs) that are just ripening. And a grid system of picture wire six feet off the ground above my head so the tomatoes can scramble up their poles and then become this network above my head, this roof of tomatoes as the summer goes on. I love eating from the garden. (laughs) Foraging. What have you been foraging? So I'm really focused on the abundant plants. For a long time, I was sort of not, not seeing the woods for the trees, but there are so many invasive plants, overabundant plants that are just presenting themselves to me to experiment with. So one that I've been working with a lot is buckthorn, berries, also flag iris root, barberry root, Japanese knotweed root. So I'm expanding my cohort of collaborators by finding uses for these plants, by finding beauty within them. And it's a really nice break after being trained and taught by gardeners and by the industrial gardening complex and by the state um, and the sort of wardens of nature in our society, being taught for so long to hate and vilify and uproot, extirpate and push back at these species and to spray them with toxic herbicides. Instead of just hating them, if if I can care for them a little bit and find some beauty and utility, then I have actually a very much more pleasant relationship with them in which I can responsibly and ethically forage them. So I never propagate or spread these plants. I'm very careful when I forage them. And when I do take a lot of plant material, which you can do because there's so much to take from these plants, um, I understand their reproduction cycle. So I'm not allowing them to further reproduce in new areas. I'm not composting any of the plant material in my garden, heaven forfend. But if I do take a lot of plant material and leave a hole in the landscape, it's an opportunity for what's called reciprocal foraging when I can put another plant in there, a native or a naturalized plant, something that will support biodiversity and just help build a little net of relationship with these rambunctious species. I'm never going to, you know, halt the flow, stem the tide of these species, but it's a lot nicer to care for them than to just rail at them. There's a lot of metaphor happening for our (laughs) interpersonal relationships here. I'm thinking about water. How does water, how do you use water in your garden? Do you just trust nature or do you? I do um, water things occasionally. The environment in my region, we've had good rainfall this summer, dry spring, but we've sort of caught up. So I will only water things that really need it. And I water them deeply. So I have pots sunk in the ground to gradually wick the water down to the deep roots instead of just feeding those shallow surface roots. So I try to be water wise. And we also have a cistern for catching uh, rainwater runoff. What salad? (laughs) have you been making lately? (laughs) Natalie makes the most amazing food, but in particular, her salads are like works of art. So tell us what you're eating and pickling. Mm. Pickling 
jalapenos and onions. Those are some of my favorites. I also tried pickling some red currants from the garden. They're a little strong, <laughs> but good. Um, so I have been putting peas from the garden peas in all of the salads. And, oh, I don't, I can't even pick one. Yeah, you made that cabbage salad when we were in New Mexico. What was in that? That was so good. I don't even remember. <laughs> it was like, how do you chop the cabbage so finely and so well? Um, just a really sharp knife <laughs> and just go slowly and then massage it with a little bit of salt and some acid. So it, it wilts a little bit and it's more tender. Mm. Mm -hmm. This is where the embodiment comes in. You've just been doing it so long that it just always ends up magical. I mean, working in the art studio is really just like being a cook. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, why do we eat salads with a fork? Like whose idea was that? I need to eat my salad with a spoon, like a big spoon. Like, that's mm -hmm. what I want to do. Like when nobody else is with me. You can do that with me. <laughs> I also love a lettuce wrap. So just use your hand and pick the whole thing up. So just compose it in the lettuce wrap. Let's imagine like a lettuce leaf with some uh, blanched fresh peas and minced lemon zest and fresh ricotta and toasted walnuts and a little bit of chopped up serrano peppers. Mm-hmm. There you so go. Like nutty, creamy, zesty, green. So good. There's our recipe. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's taking that one away. Um, have you ever pickled um, radishes? Because I just did that and that was not so pleasant. Do you have a secret to pickling radishes? I only pickle really sweet radishes instead of the really sulfurous red radishes, like a French radish. To me, tastes a little sulfury, but a daikon tastes much less so and i love a pickled daikon okay saved yeah or grated you are a very skilled teacher where can our listeners learn from you and what are you hosting in the near future hmm. i always keep a current list on my website of all the upcoming classes Many of these are online. I really strive to create a sort of welcoming online learning environment so that people from all over can join. The next one is going to be in September, and that is the class focused on invasive and ruderal pigments. And I'll be shortly announcing a series of shorter lectures online in the fall each devoted to a particular color and a particular material color with its history, something like charcoal black, eggshell white, rose matter, and do a, a lecture and a demonstration on how to make those in the studio. All physical art starts with materials. And the materials that we use each carry a story. If it's a natural material, it carries a story of place, perhaps of culture, it's a technology, color is an evolving technology. So 
um, how was it made and who made it. And those meanings can then become embedded in our work. Paint is not merely a colored viscous substance that we express ourselves with. Each and every color has its own characteristics, granularity, translucency, blah, blah. Um, and it is another way of saying these materials have each their own sort of autonomy on the page and recognizing they come from someplace and they're going to do something. <laughs> yes. Love that. Is there anything else you would like to share with us, Natalie? We've covered so much. It's been such a delight to speak with you, Morgan. Yeah, it's, I think that this is a really joyful episode and everybody is going to love listening to it. <laughs>